Good morning. My name is Larry Hitchcock. The scripture reading today continues in Luke 1, 26 through 38. If you'd like to follow along with me, you'll find it, uh, the reading on page 907 in the Black Chair Bibles, or you can follow on, this, on the screens. I, pl- I pray we experience anew the wonder of, of God in this uh, familiar story. Hear the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, The Lord, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One will be bo- to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your re- relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I'm really excited to continue uh, in our series, uh, Advent series in Luke chapter 1. And so keep your Bible open. Uh, If you're using one of the black Bibles, it's page 907. Last week, if you recall, uh, I mentioned the story of God's promise to Abraham and Sarah. This is in the Old Testament, and God's promise was that a great multitude of descendants would come from them. And the story unfolds in a really interesting way. In the middle of God promising that very thing, Sarah is standing at the tent door behind Abraham, listening to this conversation that God and Abraham are having together. And then Moses, the narrator, describes Sarah as, quote-unquote, laughing to herself, She was disbelieving because of their old age that she can get pregnant. Then the Lord says something really interesting to Abraham. He says these words, Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? We know the rest of the story. Sarah conceives and has a beautiful boy named Isaac. And yes, a great multitude would come from uh, Isaac, a, a nation called Israel. My friends, I want us to focus in just for a moment on that very question that the Lord asked Abraham. Is there anything too hard for God? Is there anything too difficult, too impossible for our Lord? Of course, the answer is no. By definition, God is the immovable mover, to quote Aristotle. God has infinite power. He can do all that he wills to do. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, our God is in the heavens. He can do whatever he pleases. 
It doesn't mean he can do something to violate his own character, but still we want to affirm that nothing is too hard for the Lord. I've got limitations. You've got limitations. We all have certain limitations. It's impossible for me, for example, to be tall. I've always wanted to be tall. Some of you are tall. I can't be tall. It's impossible for me to be a do-it-yourself man. Uh, you can ask my wife. Um, YouTube videos don't help this guy. I know they help you. They don't help this guy. Uh, it's impossible for me to support the Ohio State Buckeyes, as you know. Right? Um, it's, it's physically, metaphysically, spiritually impossible for me to support that team. And so the word impossible applies to really every person in this room, every person on this planet, in some manner, in some way, but not God. It doesn't apply to God. And it makes sense that Sarah in the Old Testament and Zechariah, as we found out last week in the New Testament, would encounter this God, encounter this God of impossibilities, and then struggle with doubt. God promises to do something big. He, he plans to make something out of nothing. It seems far-fetched. It seems, you know... Uh, unreachable, not feasible. We put ourselves in the shoes of these characters, even the faithful ones like Zachariah and Elizabeth, uh, Mary and Joseph. And as we kind of dig into their history and dig into the context of the first century, all seem to be lost. The promises seem forgotten. God has been silent for 400 years. There are no prophets. There's no indication of resurrecting the, the Davidic dynasty. Just a beat up, downtrodden nation who is under the control and watch of this pagan Roman regime. So sure, God shows up with a couple you know, angels and makes some big claims, but how are they going to have confidence in this God? How do we have confidence in God? Well, the story is going to help us as we kind of analyze the details here. Here's the main point in a sentence. I trust this is the main point of this sermon, but also the main point of this passage. Here it is, joyfully accept God's impossible plans to save his people, recognizing that nothing is really impossible with God. Joyfully accept, joyfully submit to God's impossible plans to save his people, recognizing that nothing is really too hard for God. Now, where am I getting this from? Well, we see it in our passage, actually. Look at verse 37. So this angel, after declaring a host of impossible things to Mary, what does he say? How does he conclude his little speech to Mary, well, notice what he says in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. So what I want to do with the time we have together here is point out three impossibilities about our story. Okay? And I want you to see how God is over all of it and, and how it truly is not impossible for him. The first thing I want you to see is impossible news declared by this angel in verses 26 through 33. Now, last week, we saw God was on the verge of doing something big, bringing new spiritual life back to his people, right? So he, he sends an angel to make this big announcement, and he picks Jerusalem, which is the capital city, and he chooses Zechariah, who's one of the great priests, and he makes this announcement in the temple. All God's people are standing outside. So this is kind of what you'd expect from a big announcement from God. Well, then we learn from Gabriel that this announcement is actually about the forerunner of the king. John the Baptist, the guy who would come just before, chronologically, right before the king, to prepare the way for the Messiah. Gabriel then goes where and to announce what? Well, he, notice, he goes in our story to Nazareth. Nazareth is a backwater, pick town, rather small and inconsequential. You know, can anything good come from Nazareth, right? 
So Jerusalem gets the forerunner announcement. What does Nazareth get? Maybe the king's horse is going to be announced, you know, in, in Nazareth, or maybe one of his disciples' births is going to be announced in Nazareth. But wait a second here, as we see in our story, it's the king, it's the Messiah that's being announced in Nazareth. And notice, friends, there's no fanfare, there's no trumpets, there's no crowds, there's no glory. What a strange thing, right? This is perhaps the biggest announcement. No, let me remove the word perhaps. This is the biggest announcement in human history, and there's no fanfare. There's no pomp and circumstance. Just a rather ordinary city. The story lacks any embellishments and ornamentation. I mean, I want you to imagine with me for, the, for a moment the, the throne room scene with Gabriel beforehand. God says, hey, I've got an announcement, uh, uh, excuse me, an assignment for you, and it's time to announce, announce the messianic king is going to come and save the world, and we've been waiting for this. You get the job. And, and Gabriel says, well, great, awesome. What an honor. Where do I get to go? And God says, Toledo. What? Like, why not New York City or, or D.C. or even Cincinnati? I mean, anywhere. Why Nazareth? And Mary, who is this girl? I mean, we know very little about her. There's no background. There's no qualifications listed here. She's not part of the royal family. She's probably young, between the ages of 14 and 16. Joseph, her uh, betrothed, was a carpenter. So this is a very middle class very working class sort of situation. These are very common people, much like you and me. We might be tempted to think that Zechariah in last week's passage was chosen because of his righteousness, because he's a priest. Of course, God would pay extra attention to kind of that superstar Jew. But Mary? Why Mary? And, and look at the way Gabriel greets her in verse 28. Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. There's nothing about her that would lead anyone to believe she was favored by God. But she was. She was. Have you ever felt like your life is too small for God to notice? Too insignificant for God to be aware of you? Friends, once again, we are reminded that God chooses Mary, chooses any of us, solely on the basis of his sovereign grace. And really, the only thing early in this story that has any kind of bombast or pomp and circumstance is Joseph's description. Look at verse 27. Notice he's from the house of David. Now, what's that all about? Well, he comes from the line of David. David was this great king of Israel who kept Israel together when, when you know, lots of factors could have pulled them apart. He was a big deal. He led during kind of the golden age of Israel, right alongside his son, the next generation, his son Solomon. But after his sin, after David's sin, the sword would not depart from Israel. And so civil war was introduced into the land and the nation was split into two. Both sides, in their disobedience, would experience exile to Assyria in the north and Babylon in the east. And even after exile, when they returned, there was no king. There was no kingdom. Centuries would pass with the Persians conquering those Babylonians and then the Greeks conquering those Persians, and then the Romans conquering those Greeks. And here we are in the first century. Friends, for 600 years, for 600 years, no one sat on the Davidic throne. But God did one thing during that period of time, or at least part of that period of time. He would send his prophets, a long line of them to encourage his people and rebuke his people. But interwoven in their words of comfort was the promise of a new king. One day, 
in the line of David, a king would come. And get this, friends, he would rule and reign not just over Israel, but over all the nations. In fact, Jerusalem would be a place where all the nations would come and bring their tribute to this new king, this forever king. And so we're wondering, first century Israel was wondering, where's the king? Who is this rightful king? Where is David's line? Maybe it was killed off in exile. But here we find out in chapter one of the gospel of Luke, no, God, God absolutely preserved a line. Of course he did, because nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is impossible for our God. Over 600 years, friends, through exile and war and judgment, there was a bloodline that was hidden. It reminds me a little bit of Lord of the Rings with Aragorn, who carried the bloodline of the Dunedain, the Numenorian, right? The, the great kings of men from old, a bloodline that was mostly hidden. Nobody knew Aragorn was the king. Nobody really cared. What was the relevance of this? Now, in our case here in this biblical story, David's bloodline was protected by God because he had plans. And we know from Matthew and Luke's account, the genealogies, we know who the rightful king is. You know who it is? It's Joseph. Joseph, a carpenter from Nazareth of all places. You know, we sing that uh, Christmas carol, We Three Kings, referring, of course, to the wise men that are coming later uh, in, in Luke's gospel. Uh, but there's actually three kings in the first two chapters. There's King Herod of Judea. That's the one everybody knew. He had power. Uh, it was a public kind of authority that he, of course, had. He was the actual ruler in this place. There's Joseph, this carpenter from Nazareth, the one who should be king. He's got the blood of a king, right? And of course, the third king is Jesus. Gabriel doesn't really pay much attention to Herod. He gives him just one sentence earlier in chapter one. He doesn't give too much more attention to Joseph, maybe a little bit more. What does he do with Jesus? Look at how much careful description, beautiful articulation goes into this big announcement starting in verse 31. It's, it's like when uh, the Queen of England or the King of England is announced in a public gathering. There's kind of this piling up of titles and descriptions all to convey the, the majesty and power and reverence and utmost respect, right? And, and we see this angel doing something similar. And I, I want to point out four things, four kind of descriptions of Jesus from this passage. First of all, the Virgin Mary will miraculously conceive him. Okay, so that's something new, something we haven't seen before. And notice his name will be Jesus. No, that's not a random assignment, a name assignment. Etymologically, the name Jesus or Yeshua derives from Hebrew roots, meaning the Lord is salvation. And this is why in Matthew's account, when the angel is talking to Joseph, he says, she, Mary, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so Jesus is a fitting name for the incarnate Son of God. He would not just be a king. He would be a savior king. Notice also the descriptions uh, uh, include this. He will be the son of the most high. Now that title most high is a name given to God. It comes from Genesis chapter 14 with Melchizedek. It's used often in the Psalms and other places. And I want you to notice that the, at the end of chapter one, John the Baptist is described as the prophet of the Most High, whereas here the Gabriel, Gabriel the angel, uh, calls Jesus the Son of the Most High. And so there's kind of this escalation, right? This is, this is why Jesus, according to verse 32, will be great. Now, if you'll recall with me last week's angelic encounter 
the angel also described John the Baptist as great. But it's a different word here. It's a different word than the word great used back to describe John the Baptist in verse 15. This great, this word is unqualified greatness. This is a superlative. This is the greatest, right? This is, this is there is none like this one. He is the greater one. This is Michael Jordan to Sam Cassell or Chip Gaines to me, okay? And notice at the end of these descriptions, he will take the throne of David. Once again, friends, this is fulfillment of many prophecies, especially from Isaiah, but also 2 Samuel, where Nathan says that a forever king in David's line would sit on this forever throne. I want I want us to kind of step a little bit into Mary's shoes because she was probably biblically literate and she had known about these prophecies. And and so she's receiving this incredible news. Mary would give birth to the king she had longed for all her life. I mean, wow. Jesus would be her savior king, the long-awaited Messiah. She's going to give birth to him. That is what the angel is announcing. It's astonishing, isn't it? Friends, there are just too many seeming impossibilities to count in our story here, aren't there? That God could preserve over the centuries a bloodline through the complex mess of human history with warring nations and political scandals and sinful families, that that he could hold out this long line of promises, some 450 plus messianic prophecies made to his people about this coming Savior King. And he pulls all of these prophetic threads together and weaves them together and pushes them towards this one little baby, that his plans would begin to come to a fruition, not in the halls of a grand palace, but in the dusty room of this small house in this hick town called Nazareth with a virgin girl and her working class fiance. That such grandiose majesty of plans long made could unfold from such simple poverty. Who could organize such a thing? Who could orchestrate this with with such a masterful and delicate touch? This would be far too difficult for the brightest of human minds or the greatest of angelic minds. The most powerful supercomputer could not put this one together. But friends, this is easy for God. This is playing with tinker toys for God. This is child's play because nothing is impossible for him. Nothing is too hard for him. And in order to kind of feel this deep in our bones, this Advent season presents us an opportunity not to eat more cookies or daydream about Christmas gifts, but to think deeply and carefully and slowly about what God is doing here. This baby's birth isn't just a new beginning. Of course it is that. It's the grand climax as well of of all that God has been planning since before you and I existed, since before this world existed, according to Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundations of the world. All roads led to Nazareth and Bethlehem. So that's the impossible news. Let's talk about the impossible explanation that the the angel Gabriel gives. Now, how's Mary going to respond here? Let's look at her response in verse 34. Mary asked the angel, how can this be? Since I've not had sexual relations with a man. 
Now, Mary's response sounds maybe a little bit like Zachariah's response from last week, right? Maybe it lacks faith. Maybe there's unbelief in her heart as well. But notice the angel doesn't rebuke her, which should send us a signal that this is not a question that lacks faith. I think she's not asking, can you do this? Or are you able to do this? I think she's asking, how are you going to do this? And she knows biology. She knows about the birds and the bees, right? I mean, if if X doesn't happen, how's Y going to be in my womb, right? So Gabriel, how is this going to go down? It's a pretty natural question. And notice the angel's response, starting in verse 35. The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she had conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. So Gabriel's like, okay, I've got this one. Let me explain my impossible news with even more impossible stuff. You know, the the Spirit of God will will perform this great miracle in you somehow, Mary. So you're going to get pregnant without the, you know, the the normal means of of conception and getting pregnant. Um, Okay, kind of crazy, right? I mean, there's no precedence for this in the Bible. Barrenness had precedence in the Bible, a long-documented, notable history with God, of course, intervening. But virgin birds? Yeah, there's a prophecy back in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and some people think there's even a partial fulfillment after that uh, under Ahaz's rule. Sure, but it wasn't a miraculous virgin birth. It was a maiden that gave birth to a particular special boy. This, this is the full fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14. This is different. This is new. Some of our Muslim friends have unfortunately accused Christians of believing that God somehow inappropriately impregnated Mary. That's not the case, friends. Something else is happening here, something significant. I want you to notice the language that is used. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. Now, that word overshadow is used only a couple times in the Bible, most notably when the presence of God, the divine cloud, came down and infused the tabernacle with his presence. Okay, so God overshadowed the temple or overshadowed the the tabernacle and and infused those places with his presence. So, So think about this with me, okay? The same divine cloud that guided the Israelites in the wilderness and infused the tabernacle at Sinai and filled the temple with his glory completes the drama of salvation by infusing Mary's womb with the Son of God who is Jesus. This is what the Spirit does in Mary. Now, you may have a question, you know, I've had this question over the years. Why is the virgin birth important? There are pockets of the evangelical church that have attempted to downplay and diminish the virgin birth. Hey, that's not really foundational and essential for the Christian faith. That's a false thing to say. I want to point out to you just a few reasons why this is important. The Bible teaches us that Jesus existed with God the Father and God the Son from eternity past. So, so why did he have to take on human flesh? Let me give you some reasons for this kind of impossible conception. First of all, it fulfills various strands of prophecy, as I've already mentioned before, like Isaiah seven fourteen. But I want you to consider another important prophecy, the first prophetic gospel announcement, the proto-euangelion, that's gospel, the first gospel, and this is in Genesis 3, 15. Right in the middle of cursing the serpent, cursing Satan, God says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your descendants and seed and offspring, and her descendants and seed and offspring. 
And so, friends, from that point on, there's this war that's been raging on between God's people and God's enemies. We obviously are in the middle of that war, and we feel that war daily. And so how is that war going to end? God tells Satan in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, exactly how. He says this, he, that's one of Eve's offspring, one of Eve's descendants, will strike your head, Satan, means kill and destroy Satan, and you, Satan, will strike his heel, which means to wound him. Now, we know, I mean, we're here, you know, 2000, or thousands and thousands of years after that was spoken and said, we know that Jesus is the great fulfillment of that gospel announcement, right? Which means that he had to be one of Eve's descendants to fulfill that prophecy. So that's one of the reasons that we see the virgin birth. But Jesus couldn't only be human, for how could any human be powerful enough to defeat Satan? Israel's history certainly proved that. If you look at the long line of kings, even Davidic kings, it's like, oh, this is not working out. We need more. And so the virgin birth helps us understand something else too. It helps us understand the identity of Jesus. Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. You know, if, if Jesus came to earth without taking on human flesh, you know, maybe some kind of ethereal presence that kind of comes down vaguely, well, then we would say, hey, we have really nothing in common with Jesus we don't really understand him. We don't really know whether he understands us. He needed to be man to supply to God the sacrifice that we owe. But on the other hand, what if Jesus was conceived by both Mary and Joseph? In other words, what if he was just a dude, a really special dude? Well, how can a, just a man save sinful humanity? He needed to be God to supply the righteousness humans cannot achieve. Jesus needed to be both God and man to be our mediator, to be our representative, to be our substitute. There's another reason I wanted to point out to you. The virgin birth shows us yet again that God brings life out of nothing. Notice verse 36 and what Gabriel says. It says, hey, you should believe this miracle because you've seen this other miracle with cousin Elizabeth, right? And he's just trying to build up her faith and confidence in what God could do. In many ways, the virgin birth is the climax of the barrenness motif. You've got Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah and Elizabeth, in last week's passage, the virgin birth provides an even greater picture of how salvation is entirely of God, since there's no husband involved, right? This isn't just one side being barren and empty and the other side providing life, the husband. Here we find an escalation of the barrenness motif, one that shows us a new level of what God can do, a new miracle. God does mighty things to bring forth life. He did it in Elizabeth. It's even bigger in Mary. And it just points out, friends, that we who are barren spiritually apart from God, God wants to produce new spiritual life in us. Isn't that encouraging? And we see it here echoed in uh, this virgin birth. So friends, those are just a couple of reasons. I actually have more notes. I'm not going to keep going for the sake of time, but I just want to point out the virgin birth is absolutely foundational to our Christian faith. Uh, and Mary, as she's listening to this explanation, she may not have understood all of what we've just said, uh, but she certainly understands parts of it. Uh, and so the angel very naturally anticipates her astonishment at these kind of big claims. And then he says what he concludes with in verse 37, nothing is impossible with God. Huh. Doesn't, doesn't all of this reveal to us um, the, the soaring character and majesty of our God. 
I mean, these are incredible details that, that when we fail to slow down and take it in and press it into our minds and hearts, we fail to kind of capture the wonder and gravitas of this incredible event, right? Aren't these the very reasons we sing joy to the world? The Lord has come. Christmas is not just a winter festival with cookies to bake and, you know, parties to go to and white elephant gifts to exchange. Christmas is a celebration of God taking on flesh to save you and me. I mean, this is mind-numbing, heartwarming stuff, isn't it? And so, friends, let me just encourage you. Let me exhort you. Take some time this month to slowly ponder to slowly ponder this majesty that's mingled with simplicity. Take some time to celebrate what God has done with this little baby Jesus. How can you do that? You know, grab a devotional. You know, we live in the golden age of publications, and so there's, there's Advent devotionals for everyone under the sun, uh, and families and little ones and older folks. And, and so grab something that's going to help you press your mind and heart into these Advent scriptures that will force you to slow down and, and see some of these story details that have become so familiar to us. But it's not until we slow down that we can kind of take in the surprise the <gasps> of these moments, right? So grab an Advent devotional. Um, another way to, to kind of celebrate or prepare to celebrate is pray specifically for a fresh understanding of this majesty. You know, every time we have any kind of affection towards Jesus or any time we feel wonder towards our Lord uh, or any time we, we feel kind of the epicness of the moments here in the scripture, those are all gifts from the Holy Spirit. It's not something you and I can just kind of conjure up within ourselves, which means that we ought to be praying for spiritual illumination from the Holy Spirit. And then and just another thing that just pops into my head, many of you like music, let me encourage you to listen to majestic Christmas music. You know, um, you can listen to All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth or Handel's Messiah, right? You can listen to Frosty the Snowman with your kids on repeat or drop in Angels from the Realms of Glory. Whatever will help you, help your children, your grandchildren, see with spiritual eyes, feel from the places deep down in you the utter majesty of these moments. What will help you? I'm sure you've got other applications there too. Uh, number three, let's keep going here. Um, so impossible news, impossible explanation. <clears throat> excuse me. And then we see an impossible response from little Mary. Notice verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. The section ends with Mary displaying impossible faith. She puts herself under God. You know, I'm the Lord's servant. She accepts and even welcomes what is happening to her. And, and we have to really understand what she is expect, accepting. Excuse me. She's not just accepting this miraculous birth and, hey, I'm, I've got favor from God and all the good things. Yeah, there's good things here too. But we have to understand in the context of first century Jewish life, she was accepting a life of scandal. She's only engaged to be married. She's facing a life of shame, potential divorce, possibly never marrying again. She would wear a scarlet letter. She may be forced out of her own home and family. This is what she was accepting. She's willing to take the risks 
she's asking no additional questions. She's not raising new objections. She accepts the temporary shame, knowing that she has God's favor, even though it's hidden. What a beautiful example of faith, right? We see here. What a beautiful example of faith to trust God's plans, even when that means walking down a path of shame and pain. Mary takes Gabriel's words, nothing is impossible with God, and not only applies it to what happens in her room, but applies it to what will happen in her world. God has honored me. God will vindicate me. God will protect me, even though I'm going to be experiencing much shame. It's so easy for us to doubt, to become anxious when the thing promised by God seems so far-fetched, when the world presses in and harms us, if we are to stand firm on those promises on God's word and convictions. And among many antidotes to fear and anxiety, few are more useful than what we see in Mary. What do we see in Mary here, friends? She has a singular, thorough, robust conviction that God is all-powerful. J.C. Rowell said it really well as he was reflecting on these very verses. He says, quote, Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. Indeed. And Mary stands in a long line of godly patriarchs and matriarchs who showed such risky faith in the face of trial and difficulty. And she says, once again, I am God's servant. I accept this. Let's get going with this. She sounds a lot like Abraham when God called him to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. Or Isaiah, who said, here I am, send me, when the preaching mission to Israel was doomed to fail. Or Esther, when she said, if I perish, I perish. Or Ruth, when she told Naomi, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Or Jesus himself, who would say 33 years after our story this morning in the Garden of Gethsemane, in a prayer as he's facing the cross, as as God the Father is handing him the cup of wrath and requiring that he drinks that cup down to the bottom. He says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. This is how God's people respond to God's plan, even when they don't understand it. We can't be true disciples unless we accept his plans for our lives. So when God announces a plan for your life, we're to say, let it be so. May it be. I want to accept this new set of circumstances. If it leads me down a path of darkness and pain, so be it. I'm entering into the valley of shadow of death, but I know he will be with me. Think about Mary here in this situation. She was an ordinary girl. She probably envisioned a simple life with Joseph, maybe some kids, a life under the radar. And then all of a sudden, right? I mean, God hijacks her plan and interrupts her plan. Yeah, yeah, in a good way. God wants her to be involved in the bigger thing that he's doing. And she responds with faith and acceptance. Well, friends, what about us? What about you and me? How many of us participate willingly, like Mary, with what God has before us? It's not just our little stories in isolation over here, and they're all disconnected. We are part of God's larger narrative. If you are in Christ, if you've repented of your sins and received uh, his grace in your life and forgiveness in your life, if you're a new creation, if you're a Christian, you are a part of a bigger story. 
bigger narrative. What a privilege. What grace has been given to us. And that's the thing, isn't it? That's the thing. There's a prideful impulse in each of us to feel a sense of entitlement, even in our relationship with God. My way is better. Leave me alone, God. You've got me on this path, God. I'll be okay. And this Christmas story this morning sends a disruptive shockwave through that sinful impulse. What helps us is seeing the seeming impossibility of all that God has planned to save sinners like us and recognizing that nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is impossible for him. You know, the Christian mindset during Christmas is wonderfully different than that of the world's. The world can't handle the hardships of this life. You know, they think that darkness is here for good. It's, it's, it's impossible to overcome the darkness, and we should just accept it. And so Christmas, what's Christmas? Well, it's just an opportunity. It's a season to ignore the darkness, to, to wrap it up with a bow and cover it up with Buddy the Elf and family gatherings and tree-shaped cookies. The world wants to forget that loved ones pass away shockingly. That cancer erodes our bodies. That sin erodes our souls. And there's no human cure for shame or guilt. But Christians are different. Oh, we believe in the God of the impossible. We don't need to ignore the darkness in the world. We don't need to ignore the darkness in our lives. We need not fear it. We can recognize it, we can name it, we can face it. In fact, the darkness and fragility creates the very context for us to welcome the gift of Jesus, doesn't it? Because the impossible thing has already happened. Light has come. Something bright, something hopeful, something powerful has pierced the darkness this little baby has pushed the darkness aside, has given us hope, is pointing us in the right direction. And so I don't know what darkness may be in your life. I know we as a church family were grieving the loss of a dear sister. Listen, friends, every goodbye said on this side of heaven has a corresponding hello in the next age for those who are in Christ. And that hope, that hope of the resurrection, that hope to see your sister Patty again, that hope begins with this little baby boy who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the Savior of all saviors. Amen. Take some time now to ponder this passage.